0: You are listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, uh, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13? Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. This is the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And this is what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid everything, hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it this is god's word let's uh, let's pray Heavenly Father, thank you um, God in your grace for us and your great love God you um, you unlock these mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in ways for us to understand God thank you for stories thank you for the power of um, your word Lord God and right now I just pray for all of us in this place, God, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying, Lord God. Give us eyes to see like we've never seen before the greatness and the majesty of who you are, God, and your unsurpassing love for us. Would that just be so real tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So we've been in a uh, short summer series like Tark was talking about, about miracles and parables, and um, tonight we're looking at a parable taught by Jesus in a section of Scripture in Matthew that's unique because the entire chapter uh, 13 is all parables. Jesus just teaches in story, in parables. Um, I think we can all relate and understand on some level the power of story, right? Uh, I mean, I love stories. I love books. I love movies. Um, when I was in grad school, I had to drive to Indiana and, and back, and I would just listen to like books on tape stories. I'm just a nerd that way. I just, I would just love, I love stories. I get lost in stories. Um, I'm reading to my kids. I have three girls, uh, ages 10, 7, and 4, and I'm reading to the younger two right now, the Chronicles of Narnia, and, uh, and they just like light up when these things uh, uh, come alive, especially when we tell them about the correlation between Jesus and uh, Aslan and everything. It's really, it's powerful, and it, stories do something different than facts can do, right? Um, if if we were just to tell the facts to each other, um, it wouldn't always have the same power, and God knows that. He's created us that way, so there's, this empathy, there's this thing that happens in story where we actually engage and become attached to and experience people's experiences through story. Um, this is used in scripture and a great example is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses one to seven. It's when Nathan, the prophet, goes and confronts King David, all right? And, and you probably remember the circumstances. David had slept with Bathsheba, the wife of another man, and, uh, and she'd become pregnant. And when David finds out she's pregnant, he tries to cover up what's happened to the point that he murders Uriah, her husband, and it's covered. And no one knows except for David what's, what's happened here. But God tells Nathan, and he sends Nathan to go confront David. Now, now, Nathan could have gone to David and said, hey, gig's up. God told me, I know the whole deal. You sinned, you're dead, game over. He could have done that. But listen to what Nathan does in this really powerful way uh, in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. It says, um, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, Nathan said, or it could say, uh, Nathan told David a story. He said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Look what happens. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As sure as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. There's something powerful that happens inside of David as this story unfolds. Uh, David had been a shepherd and and he knew sheep and knew what it was to take care of sheep. and, And I'm sure all of those things came up inside of him. And this is the power, the empathy of story. It causes this reaction in David that just slaps him across the face and opens his eyes to what he's done. The weight of his sin uh, the, the lack of pity that he had on Uriah and Bathsheba. All of these kingdom principles, who God is, were, were just unlocked in front of David and it just struck him right in the face in this really powerful way. So stories are extremely effective. God uses them uh, in scripture. And they're great use uh, of all teachers. Um, I think it's important for us to to know why Jesus is teaching in parables in this section of Scripture. Um, It was certainly relevant in the culture that Jesus was in at that time to teach uh, in parables. Greek philosophers taught in story and in parable. Uh, Rabbis would teach uh, young Jewish men about law and about uh, who they were and how to act and, and everything through story and parables. But Jesus has a a different aim when he's teaching in parables. See, Jesus' parables left a lot of people confused and perplexed, insulted, um, angry. It had a different effect. And when we read in Matthew, we actually see that was part of Jesus' whole plan in teaching out of parables, See, it says uh, in this section of scripture that Jesus was te- had been teaching to a crowd, which was unusual. Uh, usually when uh, a rabbi would teach his disciples, it would just be him and his guys. Just his, his guys, and he'd teach them the parables, and he'd walk them through the meaning and all these different things. But this is different. Jesus is in front of a crowd, he's on a boat, and there's tons of people, and he's teaching in parables. And it doesn't make sense to the disciples. So it, it says in Matthew chapter 10... They went to Jesus to figure out what was going on. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people, the crowd, in parables? And this is what Jesus says. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they will, uh, even even what they have, will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this, people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn. And I would heal them. This is what Jesus is saying and why it's really important for us to understand this as we read the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Everything that Jesus is talking about pertains to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven being that inbreaking of God into the life of man, that, that shalom being restored, uh, the peace with God being restored on earth as it hadn't been since the Garden of Eden. That's what Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of heaven. And, and the, the Jews were waiting for this, they anticipated it, that it was coming. They just didn't see it right in front of them with Jesus. The crowd that Jesus was talking to was made up of of three types of people those that were following him, becoming his disciples, those that were rejecting him and building a case against him, and those that were comfortably straddling the fence. Like we heard about last week when Francis was teaching and the parents of the blind man who was healed, they, they saw what Jesus had done, they'd experienced the healing, but they just weren't ready to make that commitment to Christ. And this is who the crowd was, those believing his disciples, those rejecting and building a case, and those on the fence. And what Jesus is saying is this, for those that are choosing to follow me, these parables are going to blow your mind. <laughs> I'm going to unlock these principles of the kingdom of heaven that it's going to expound the way you, you understand me and God. For those that reject me, not only are you going to be confused, but whatever understanding you came here with, it's going to be less when you leave. You're in trouble. God, Jesus is saying there's actually going to be a further distance between us. And for those who are on the fence... These parables are meant to put those people in a corner and say, choose. Jesus is, he does not like indifference. He says, you're either for me or you're against me. Come on. What's it going to be? See, he draws, draws this line in the sand, and this is what Jesus does. He throws wide this gate of grace. Throws wide this gate of grace and says, come, come on. Enter through. Join me. And every person that enters through that gate of grace, they will, they'll come to a narrow door on this path. That narrow door of truth. And you have to decide if they are going to step through or not. Wide that gate of grace. Narrow that door of truth. That's what Jesus is teaching. It's the reason he's teaching in parables It's really a lot different than Aesop's fables or, um, you know, Mother Goose nursery rhymes, which I kind of like associated for a long time in my life, like these parable teachings with Jesus, that these were good, Uh, you know, lessons with a moral and and those are fun and easy to understand and stuff. It's a lot heavier than that, what Jesus is saying, saying for me or against me, I will unlock the kingdom or you'll have no clue what I'm talking about. So that brings us to. The parable of the hidden treasure and of the pearl. Um, you might have a few questions as you read this parable. Um, one, why would a treasure be buried in a field? It's just like a Jack Sparrow, like I thought pirates came later uh, thing. Um, and here's, here's what's, what's happening is that it was really common in this day and age, in a war-torn place like Israel, for... Um, Families, when when an an army would come from another nation to take everything that they possessed, everything they held dear, their treasures, and go bury them, go hide them. There were no banks, no safety deposit box. So let's say that the army of Oakland uh, came rushing across the bridge uh, to all of our dismay. Um, And uh, we love you, Oakland East Bears. Uh, Don't take this personally. And so then we San Franciscans Ah, the Oaklanders are coming. And we go and we take our designer jeans and our our laptops and our, our, our iPhones and our Vespas and we dig big, deep holes and we just bury everything in Golden Gate Park. And we say, if Oakland takes over, so be it. They will never have my treasure. If we win, I'll go back and get my stuff. Like that, that was the, the idea here, is, is, is that as warring armies would come through, they'd plunder and take everything. There was no place to put it, so the stuff you held most dear, bury it, hide it. You could always go back and get it, or worst case, it wouldn't go to them. That's the idea. That's why it's buried. Um, another question you might have is, why a pearl? It says there's a pearl merchant. He finds a pearl. Why not diamonds? Why not bars of gold? Why not some other jewel or something like that? And there's something that's happening in this time in history that's there's this infatuation with pearls Uh, they were extremely rare uh, which meant they were extremely expensive it says uh, that Cleopatra had uh, a single pearl that was worth 25 million denarii and a denarii was a day's wages that that means that that pearl in today's dollars is like four billion dollars in value for a single pearl okay and that. The disciples would have known, like, this is, we're talking about serious value here. So they they would have understood that. Okay, so let's look at our parable for tonight. Um, There's two key things that I think um, we need to know as we read this parable and we walk away uh, tonight. Uh, The first is this. The treasure of the kingdom of heaven can be found in fields of ordinariness. I don't even know if that's a word. Ordinariness. The treasures of the kingdom of heaven can be found in fields of ordinariness. And secondly, the treasures of the kingdom of heaven, they will cost us everything. The treasures of the kingdom of heaven will cost us everything. All right, fields of ordinariness. Notice in uh, the first parable of the hidden uh, treasure... That there's not anything particularly remarkable about the field. Okay, this is just a field in, in a town, in a village. Everyone probably knew about the field, walked past the field. Uh, this guy happened to be in the field. Was he working in the field? We don't know, but he was there. Nothing particularly remarkable about the field. It's just an ordinary field. And the thing is, God loves the ordinary. <laughs> God loves the ordinary. How do we know this? Um, Notice throughout scripture the people God uses to tell his story. Uh, From from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, this book is full of remarkably ordinary people. Uh, People that cry and that uh, are afraid and people that rebel and people that get disciplined and people that murder and, and steal and do a lot of stupid things. They're just almost comically ordinary people. God loves that. 1 Corinthians says that this is all part of God's plan, that he uses the foolish to confound the wise. That's me and Tarek's favorite verse. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. Uh, God loves the ordinary, loves uh, people that have the stakes built up against them. And this is so completely opposite to the way we view people, yes? All right? Um, Think about this. If you were going to create the greatest story ever told, you needed a superhero would you not look for the man of steel or Thor or something like that? Think about this. These are the stories that are just being recycled now uh, in our day and age from, from years past. Amazing stories, and these people are superhuman. They can't be ordinary people, they have to be super people. The guys are just yoked out like crazy. I mean, that can't be natural, and they're super people. And they have super uh, courage, and, and they're super smart. And God says, "No, <laughs> that's not who I use. That's not the people to tell my my story." Uh, we do this with each other constantly, even, okay, if you're real honest with yourself tonight, when you walked in and we were looking, who are you going to have conversations with? Wasn't there something like, mm, I can pass on that one. Yes, I definitely need to talk to that one. Like, you, we do this just on surface things. There was a, a video that went, not viral. I don't even know what that means. I'm so like technology challenged. But there was a, a, a video that was around a lot on my social media stuff. Um, and it was uh, Dustin Hoffman. Did anybody see this video? Yeah? Okay. Uh, here's the short story of it. Dustin Hoffman played uh, the character Tootsie uh, back in the 80s, right? Where he was an actor in this movie. He's an actor, unemployed, trying to get a job. And so he says, I will dress like a woman. And I will go out and try to get this uh, part for a soap opera. And so Dustin Hoffman, in studying for this, uh, this role, he actually went to the the theater co- or the movie company and said, listen, I need to experiment. I, I need you to make me look like a woman. I want to walk around New York and actually uh, see if I can convince people I need to be the real thing. So the, the company said, yeah, let's do it. So they, they took him in and did the makeup and the, the hair and like everything. And then um, the, the makeup artist, people put the mirror in front of him and said, here you go. And he was like, shouldn't I be better looking? And they're like, dude, that's the best we can do. And, and he's like, there was this thing, and here, here's where this comes into play. There's this thing that happened inside of him, he said, this is an interview that he's talking about. Um, he said, I looked in the mirror and thought, if I'm gonna be a woman, okay, I get choked up because I have three little girls. Um, if I'm gonna be a woman, I, need, I should be a beautiful woman. I should, I should look prettier than this. And he said, in that moment, this thing happened where I just thought, how many women have I just disregarded and walked past and never engaged in conversation or or anything because of just what I saw? And inside of them, gosh, what must have just been eating them alive? They just, they wanted to be something more than that. Because we believe that we have to be something more than what we are. This is, this can't possibly be good enough. It's just a lie. And God says, no, the treasures of my kingdom are buried in ordinary people. How do we know this? The word tells us that Jesus was not extraordinary on the outside. Okay, listen, Isaiah 53 tells us Jesus was ordinary in appearance. It says, uh, he grew up before uh, him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. God knew the game. He knew the way we think and that we would elevate someone strikingly beautiful, super uh, humanly strong. Uh, We would elevate them. And he said, no, I will come to you as the most ordinary person you've ever seen. And those who will follow me, it will be true because they'll be following who I am, and what I say, more than what you see. God buries the treasures of his kingdom in ordinary people. Jesus also says that great treasure is buried in a, a seemingly ordinary story. When I talk to people about Christianity in this, this city and other places, um, here's how it usually goes. I'm interested in Jesus. He says some really uh, interesting things and that I'm kind of, it's connecting with me. Um, I like what he has to say here, and that fits with kind of like where I'm going in my journey. Um, but what, what tends to happen is, is we're creating this religious cocktail, Right? We put a little splash of Jesus and then we take in a little bit of the traditional church and then uh, we throw uh, in there some Eastern philosophy and things and we make this thing that's drinkable. Okay, I can consume this. This, this works for me. It's not too bitter. Okay, Not too strong. It's just right. Christopher Hitchens, um, he was uh, one of the leaders of the new atheist movement. And I love his writing. I love reading him. I love listening to him. Super entertaining. I disagree with pretty much everything he's ever said, but I just enjoy listening to him say it, even though I, I disagree with it. Um, so he wrote this thing, and he had, he had this issue with Christianity. It's too simple. It's for the stupid people. <laughs> no, no thinking human can ever believe this, he would say. And one of the crux of his arguments is this thing of vicarious redemption. It's irresponsible of us to throw our sin onto someone else. It's not responsible and it's not moral. We shouldn't do that. And, and, and what he's saying I think echoes a lot of what uh, our, our day and age in this time of understanding and seeking uh, in who God is and, and spiritual things It echoes, it says that that can't possibly be enough. (laughs) Jesus going to the cross, me casting my sin onto him and believing in him, that can't possibly get the job done. So what I'll do is I'll build a ladder. And in that ladder, I will make some real challenging things so that when I get to the top of that ladder, I can say, look what I've done. Look where I've ascended to. This means something now. Now. And what we're trying to do, we're just trying to justify ourselves. And Jesus says, no, listen, this simple, ordinary story of me carries the freedom for the entire world. Carries healing for the entire world. I'm completely lost on my notes now, sorry. Um... So so this is what Jesus says um, in total contrast to the way we think our religious life should be. He says, um, if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, if you want this to be yours, you have to be like a child. And how does a child think? Simply. Uh, My kids don't try to justify their reason for being at the dinner table. (laughs) They don't have to. They just believe that I'm their dad and I love them and I want them there, and it's true. Jesus says, if you're gonna inherit the kingdom, be like this. Be like a child. Stop complicating yourself. The second point um, that Jesus shows in this parable is of the pearl. It says, the kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven, excuse me, will cost us everything. It will cost us everything. Here's what I mean uh, by that. In in both parables, both men, upon finding the treasure and the pearl, it says that um, they went with joy, sold everything that they had, and went and bought the prize, the thing of greater value. Why is this significant? Because with both men, there's a transfer of treasure that happens. There's a transfer of treasure. My earthly treasure gets transferred out for a heavenly treasure, something of greater value. So if you stop and think about this, if I said I had something in my pocket that was worth $500, would you want to buy it? What would you ask? What would you ask? 400. <laughs> Salesman. Uh, I think you would ask, uh, what's in your pocket? If it's a spoon, no. If it's a keys to a Ferrari, yes. Depends on how much we value that thing, right? And, and, and the stakes are really high here for both men. They are throwing everything to this venture of the treasure laid before them. The stakes are really high. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times in Christianity, what we do is we treat uh, Jesus like a rabbit's foot. And uh, you might have experienced it. Maybe, maybe you're in this place. Uh, I know I've experienced this. When people uh, first come to Jesus, They the story goes something like this. I was in a really hard place, and I was really struggling with this stuff, but then... I found Jesus, and I've got all this peace, and um, man, things at work are just so much better. And uh, I'm in this really cool community of people, and uh, I even started dating someone. It's all the stars are aligned. Go, Jesus. And the problem with that, when we dumb down Jesus to this place of comfort and convenience, first of all, we lessen the value of that treasure extremely And what happens when you're not really filled with that much peace? Um, When things at work go really bad or, or you don't even have a job? When your community rejects you or hurts you, the people you love most wound you? Where's Jesus then? See, in that economy of thinking, there hasn't been a transfer of treasure. What we've done is we said, I'll use Jesus to get the things that are really treasured to me. Uh, that treasure for me is that position at work. I really, that's the thing I treasure. So if Jesus can get me there, I'll go with Jesus. I I just I want to be dating someone, I want to be married so bad. If Jesus can get me there, I'll go with Jesus but there hasn't been a transfer of treasure. These men didn't throw in a, down, a deposit on the treasure and then wait to see how this investment would pan out. It wasn't that. It was everything. And, and there's, a, there's a point in our, our walk with Christ, and, and this is, there was a book written by um, Peter Cesaro. He's a pastor in New York. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I recommend all of us read it. Um, and in it, he talks about the stages of our Christian walk. And smack in the middle of our Christian walk, there's stage three, and it's called the wall. And the wall can be all kinds of different things uh, it, it might be relational, uh, it might be economic, uh, it might be, it could be anything. But what the wall represents is something that challenges our trust in Christ, it puts this treasure to the test. And I want to just tell you um, how Noelle and I have experienced the wall. <laughs> Noelle's my wife. Um, in 2010, we uh, left Southern California, sold our home, uh, packed up our kids, and we moved to the Bay Area. Moved to Santa Clara, where I um, got a dream job at an amazing school. I was working in education. A dream job at a private school in Sunnyvale. Um, It was just an answer to all of our prayers, and it was amazing. And so so we went. Full faith, we just went, and the place was everything we hoped for and more. Um, We began just thriving. Our kids were doing amazing. Um, We were living in the Bay Area. Who doesn't want to be here? Everyone wants to be in the Bay Area. Um, Financially, God was just blessing us like crazy. I mean, everything was was awesome. We were thriving. And that same year when we came to the Bay Area, we went... (laughs) We went and visited the Swedish American Hall, um, where this really small church at the time was starting, and the moment we walked in, God just gripped our heart for the city and what he was doing. We, we We literally experienced God breaking in, the kingdom of God breaking in, and we were just blown away. So... We're living out this journey, and I'm working at the school, and things are going great. So much so that the, the head of the school brings me into his office, and he says, Dave, listen, I'm 66. Uh, I'm going to retire in not too long. And uh, the board and I have been talking, and we believe that you're, you're the guy. For the next season of this, this school, we believe you're the guy to take over. And in that conversation, you guys, I saw rolled out in front of me the next 15, 20 years. Financial security, uh, living in this amazing place long-term, uh, everything we had, everything I went to grad school for and, and just poured myself into, sacrifices we had made, it was all just laid out in front of us. And at that same time, there was this whispering in my spirit of this call of pastoring and I had just been resisting it all of my life I didn't want to be a pastor (laughs) and I could see this as time went by and so then it was 2010 and then 2011 and both of these things are just gaining steam and growing and, and I can see the fork in the road like, it's gonna it's to have to be one or the other at some point here. <clears throat> so Noel and I start praying. I mean, praying and praying for months and months. Intense praying, too. It came down to one night where we're sitting at our dinner table. And we're both praying, God, just show us, Lord, what, what it is you have for us, where you're gonna take us, what you want us to do. We're just praying, pouring our heart out. And God gives us his word. He gives us his word. I want you to go all in. If you've ever played poker, you get to a point in the game where either you have a killer hand or you want everyone to think you have a killer hand and so you say something, you say all in. And what all in means is that every chip that you have built up at that point in the game, everything that you possess gets pushed to the middle of the table you have nothing left. It's all or you're out. And that's the word God gave us. Go all in. And we wept. (laughs) We cried, I'm not joking, We, we cried, like everything, all of it. And we did, we went all in. We left South Bay and we moved our family into the city and tried to figure out the school system and <laughs> ridiculous rent and, you know, a city where there's more dogs than there are kids and just all, every challenge you can imagine. We left everything we thought we had, we had worked for, the dream, and went all in for the joy the joy set before us, and I'm telling you guys, I, wouldn't, I would never make a different decision. What I've seen God do, I, I tell you guys this, like at some point I will be in my rocking chair telling stories of what God did in San Francisco in this season where he broke into the city like never before, and we saw things we never thought possible. Look at this, it's a Sunday night in the city, and look it, we're gathering in someone else's church. All of these people, it's The kingdom of God is breaking it. We're experiencing it. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Like a child. (laughs) All right, I want to close with this. In this parable, we actually see the life of Christ lived out. Christ was in, he was, was on the throne, in the throne room, had everything, perfect peace, all authority. And he came upon a treasure. Something so valuable that it compelled him to get off the throne, to get dirty, to, to, to lay his life down for people that would spit in his face and mock him. Uh, he would bleed he would be tortured. It would cost him his life eventually. He would literally, literally be thrown into the pit of hell. You got to imagine that this treasure was extremely valuable. What could that possibly be? It's you, it's me. And Hebrews 12 tells us that. Jesus was the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, laughing in its face, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. We've been talking about treasure a lot tonight and I don't want you to leave this place without understanding the way God views you as a a treasure of greater price than we even understand. Enough to send Christ to death, destruction, hell, rejection. For you, for me. All of Jesus' parables had uh, one intention, and it was to get us to understand the principles of God and make a decision on how we would live. And quite honestly, that's where he leaves us tonight. Everything we've done up to this point in the service, from, from worshiping to, to this message, uh, comes to this place where Christ is asking you to respond. He doesn't like the fence. So tonight would you make that transfer of treasure whatever that treasure is and, and we're going to pray in a minute and I, I'm going to pray that God reveals in your heart where the treasure lies and then we're going to respond and would you just freely throw that treasure into God's lap and receive in return the joy the freedom in front of us in Christ let's pray God, I thank you that your word is alive. God, it's it's way more than an instruction manual. God, that as these words are, are read and, and as they're spoke, as they're digested, Lord, um, there's something active in our spirit that comes alive. God, I pray right now for us as a church family. Lord, that we would not go out the doors tonight with just knowledge in our head. Lord, God, what a waste that is. God, would you change us? Would you free us? God, would you pull out the root of earthly treasure in us, Lord God, and in your grace and mercy, Lord, would you replace it with a heart of flesh, Lord, a heart that that longs for you, that delights in being in front of you, God, that loves your presence. Would you create in us, God, that clean heart tonight? I believe, Lord, in faith, um, that tonight people are going to surrender themselves to you fully like they never have. God, would you um, meet us in this place? Speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.